My name's John Redmond from First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas, and today on Peace by Believing, we're going to be thinking about heaven, and the sermon is so long that we're going to just start it right now with a short introduction. Thanks for listening today. Jesus, only a few hours away from the cross, was thinking and talking about heaven. Now, why was that? What can we learn from this? Well, to me, it's very interesting that Jesus was more focused on where he was going than on what he was going through. Now you think about that. We're all going through something in our lives. Some are going through cancer. Some are going through the loss of a job. Some are going through a relationship problem. People in this room are going through all kinds of different things. But Jesus was more concerned with where he was going than on what he was going through. Jesus knew that if he could keep his mind focused on heaven that somehow the promise of heaven could help him with the problems that he was about to encounter over the next 12 to 18 hours. And so that's what I want us to think about today, how heaven, the promise of heaven, can make the problems of this life so much more bearable. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, there's a phrase in there that describes Jesus and how he faced the cross and what his attitude was as he was looking at Calvary and Golgotha and all the pain that would be involved in that. And it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now watch that. Jesus was able to endure. He was able to keep on keeping on. He was able not to give up because of the joy that was set before him. And so there's something about keeping our mind on heaven that makes it so much more bearable to go through the difficulties and challenges of life. It's interesting, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read that the Apostle Paul had an experience where he was caught up into what he described the third heaven, the home of God, the place where God lives. Now, if there's a third heaven, there's got to be a first and a second, and there is. The first heaven is what we would call the atmospheric level, where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the stars shine. And the third heaven is where God lives. Someone has said we see the first heaven by day, the second heaven by night, and the third heaven by faith. But it's not a blind faith. The Bible gives us vivid descriptions of what heaven is like. And it doesn't just do that to satisfy our curiosity. God gives us descriptions of heaven so that we can get in our minds and get in our hearts that we as children of God are on our way to a city which has foundations and whose builder and maker is God. So that said, if you'll turn a little farther in your Bible to the right, to the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, these two chapters give us more descriptions of heaven than any other passage of Scripture in all the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. And so I want to just point... I'll draw some things out of these passages today, and some of the, what I'm going to be showing you, you already know. Some of it you may not know. Others of it you knew and you haven't thought about it in a long time. But I want us just to do a little bit of a Bible study. I think this part of the sermon will take about 10 or 12 minutes. And I want us just to think about what heaven is going to be like. And so, first of all, notice in Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, 
that there's coming a day when the heaven as we know it today, the heaven that is above us will actually come down to where the earth is now. John said, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so he's telling us that heaven is a city. Just like Pasadena is a city, Deer Park's a city, Houston, Dallas, Atlanta. These are cities. Heaven is a city. And just like our cities today have qualities and characteristics, so does heaven. There are certain things about heaven, about that city, that we need to know and that God wants us to know. Notice, first of all, that heaven is a perfect place. Look in verse number 3. It's absolutely perfect. In other words, think about this. Your loved ones who have preceded you in this life, where are they now? Well, if they were saved, they're in heaven. They're in a city. They're not, their soul is not sleeping. They're not laid out in some grave waiting for Jesus to come back. They are alive and well and in God's presence in heaven right now. What did Paul say? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Bodies are buried. Souls and spirits are not buried. Notice how he describes heaven. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So the first thing God wants us to know about heaven, it is absolutely perfect. In heaven there's no sickness, no sadness, no sorrow, no pain, no death. Heaven is an absolutely perfect place. Now, we know that earth is an imperfect place. And so God's, God's saying to us, as you experience sickness, sorrow, sadness, pain, and death, that's part of the human experience. That's part of what happens in life. But God is saying to us, remember this, you are living in the land of the dying. But you are on your way to the land of the living. You're going to a place where no one ages, no one gets sick, no one dies. And God says, listen, when you're going through your suffering, if you'll remember where you're headed to, it will make it more bearable. God said, I want you to know, you're, again, you're in the land of the dying, but you're going to the land of the living. Not only that about heaven, but something I find interesting is that the city of heaven is, is surrounded by a huge wall, and this wall has gates going all the way around it. It's like the wall has four parts, and on each part of that wall, there are three gates, and John tells us all about this in his vision. Look in verse number 12 of Revelation 21, and it says, and she had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and 12 angels at the gate. So there's an angel at each gate. And names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So this city is surrounded by all these gates. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the t- names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so I find it interesting, like when you die and your spirit is taken by the angels into the city, heaven, 
when you get there, the first thing you're going to see are these walls, and you're going to see these gates, and you'll be moving towards the gates, and you'll be moving inside of that city. But it is a very descriptive uh, image here that we have. Now, we also know that heaven is a very large city in verse 16 and following. We read about this. It says, the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured, that is, an angel is giving the Apostle John a guided tour of heaven. And it says, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Now, a furlong is about an eighth of a mile. And so if you do the math on this, you discover that the perimeter of heaven is 15 hundred miles. But it's made up, again, it's set out as a square, so each square is 375 miles. Just imagine that. Heaven is a big, it's a huge, there's, no, there's never been a city this big. And so you have 375 miles this way, 375 this way, 375, 375. It is a huge city. Someone has done more math and said there are 140,625 square miles of heaven. 90 million acres, room for a hundred billion people, and we'll all have a ranch. So I don't know about if we all have a ranch or not, but I know that heaven is a very spacious place, and it would have to be because of all the people who will be there. Again, there's never been a city the size of heaven. It's the largest city ever made, and it's a beautiful city. Look in verse 21. These gates, these 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And so it's beautiful. And in verse 22, we read it's a bright city. John said, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So the brightness of heaven, so bright that it doesn't even need the sun. Because Jesus himself is providing the light for this city. Now we know that people are there from every possible background, every ethnic group, every color of skin. In verse 24 it says, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor it into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And so people from every background, from every tribe, and from every country will be there. Now also in heaven, I think the picture that God is giving us here of heaven is that while I'm sure there are many streets and maybe we would think of avenues or roads in heaven, there appears to be one main street. Just think of it as the main street of heaven. And as we're walking down that main street, we're walking toward a huge throne. In my mind, I picture it kind of towards the back of heaven, or maybe it's closer to the center, but it's somewhere fairly deep within heaven, and God is seated on that throne. Look in chapter 22 and verse 1. It says, John said, And the angel showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so God is on His throne. Jesus is, is, is seated next to the Father. And out of this throne, there comes this river of water of life. There's, this river has no source except God Himself. The throne of God is the source of the river. God is the headwaters of this, 
uh, of this beautiful river that is coming out of the throne and it's going down, down, down near the main street of heaven. Verse 2, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so when we get to heaven, we'll eat from the tree of life. We'll eat fresh fruit every month. And that word healing there comes from the word that we translate in the English language, therapeutic. There's something in heaven that is therapeutic and healing about the fruit that we'll eat from the tree of life. Someone has said that when we get to heaven... Everybody will have the glow of good health about them. You know, when somebody's healthy, you can look in their eyes and their countenance and the color of their skin, and you can just say, that person is healthy and hearty and strong. Well, in heaven, we'll all be that way, and the the fruit is going to give us that from the tree of life. And it's absolutely uh, an amazing thing. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden? God had said that they could eat fruit from any tree except for one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, if you eat fruit from that tree, and the day that you eat it, you'll die. You'll die immediately in your spirit and progressively and eventually in your body, but you will die. And they sinned. They ate the forbidden fruit. There was another tree in the Garden of Eden called the tree of life. And if you ate from that tree, you would live forever. You'd never die. Do you remember as soon as Adam and Eve ate from the wrong tree, God sent his angels down, and the Bible says, like flaming swords, they blocked Adam and Eve from coming to the tree of life. Why? Because had Adam and Eve eaten the fruit from the tree of life in their sinful fallen condition, think about how horrible this would have been. That would mean that they would have lived forever in a body prone to sickness and decay. I can't think of anything better than to be sick, decaying, and yet you couldn't die. We think of death as a release many times. But can you imagine to be in a situation where your body is shutting down and it's not functioning properly, and yet because you've eaten from the tree of life, you won't die. You'll live forever. And so God, the first act of grace, or one of the first acts of grace in all the Bible, was when God shut down access to the tree of life. And he said, I'm not going to let you eat from that tree in a fallen state, or you'll always be like this. But in heaven, isn't it interesting, when we get to heaven, we're going to find that tree. That tree has been transplanted from earth to heaven. And when we get there, we will be able to eat its fruit. And the fruit, even though we'll already have perfect bodies, there's something about that fruit that will nourish us and make us stronger and keep us fresh all through eternity. And then in heaven, in verse 3, we read that we're going to serve God. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. And so when we get to heaven, we're going to have the name Jesus engraved right across our heads. And we're going to serve him. We're going to worship him. We don't know all the things that we'll do. But we're going to spend eternity doing whatever he tells us to. And we'll be serving him. And not only that, best of all, verse 4, we're going to see his face. They shall see his face, the Bible says. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Now, as I was preparing this sermon... I spent quite a amount of time this week just online trying to find pictures of heaven, depictions. 
what might all this look like? And I had selected three or four or five pictures that I was going to show you at this point and say, you know, some people think heaven might look like this. Or from the description we read here, some might think it looks like this. And I decided not to show it because I want you to use the imagination God gave you with the things that I have just described. And I want you in your mind to imagine this beautiful city where Jesus is and where we are headed and where we very soon will be. In the outline, you see three main points that I had for this sermon, and I'll just give them to you now. First, and what I want you to see, heaven is a place. It's not an, imagina- it's not an imagination. It's not a figment of our imagination. No, it's not a state of mind. Heaven is a city. Just like the cities we live in, heaven is a real place. Not only that, heaven is a prepared place. Again, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven is going to have whatever it would take to make us enjoy it and appreciate it and feel special and feel real to us. But also, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Not everybody's going to heaven. In fact, most people are going to miss it. And in fact, if you look in Revelation 21, I want to show you one verse in 20, chapter 21 and one in 22 that contrast saved people and unsaved people. Those who will be inside the gates and those who will be outside the gates. And to me, this is very interesting. Revelation 21, 27, those who are inside the gates. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the only people going to heaven are people who are saved. And in chapter 22 and verse 15, it describes those who are going to miss heaven. And it said, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So that's, that doesn't mean that everybody who's going to miss heaven is an adulterer or a murderer. There are many people who are good, upstanding, moral people who will miss heaven because they've never been saved. But this is just describing one group of people who will miss out on heaven. And he describes them as immoral. But the point is, these people are unsaved. Remember at the first of chapter 21, when John's having this vision, he's seeing heaven. And he's seeing how it will be, the, the, the new heaven will be. Like today, we're on earth and heaven is, is up. Heaven is to the north. Okay, so, so for us, we say heaven is up. But one day, the earth that we live on is going to burn up. And heaven is going to come from where it is down here on the earth and Heaven will be somewhere where the earth is now. And so the question is, well, where will uh, heaven be? And while nobody fully knows the answer to that question, there are many theologians who believe that when heaven comes down, it's going to be in the general area where Jerusalem is now. Now, heaven is going to be a lot bigger than Jerusalem is not 1,500 miles. You know, it's not that big. But remember, in, at the end of time, there's not going to be any ocean. There'll be no more sea. Now, 70% roughly of the world is ocean. But at the end, there'll be no sea. So by, if you go to Israel today, you'll notice that behind Jerusalem to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. Well, that won't be there then. So maybe heaven will be centered in Jerusalem, and it'll go back in towards the Mediterranean Sea. Or maybe it'll be moved up 
towards the further part, and it'll stretch out closer towards Iraq that way. We don't know. But there are many who think that heaven will eventually be where Jerusalem is now. Now, if that is true, let me tell you something else that's very interesting. If you go to Jerusalem today, one of the things your guide will point out to you, to the south of Jerusalem, there is a huge valley that in Old Testament times was called the Valley of Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M, the Valley of Hinnom. And back then, people worshipped all kind of false gods, and they had been convinced that if they would offer up their children, child sacrifice that that would prove to these false gods that they were more loyal to the God than they were to their own children. And so in this valley, by the thousands, maybe by the hundreds of thousands, parents were offering up their children. It was a wicked, evil place. Smoke coming up as these little babies were being burned. Fast forward to New Testament times, in this same valley, by then they weren't offering up child sacrifice like they were in Old Testament times, but this became the city dump. It became the place where everybody in Jerusalem would go out and dump their trash. And those who kept up this area, they would just keep a continual fire burning so that the trash could be burned up. So had we lived in the day of Jesus, every time we went by the Valley of Hinnom, or in the Greek language, the word that they used to describe this valley was Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, Gehenna. It was this valley. People took their trash. It was always on fire. It's interesting. When Jesus began to describe hell, the lake of fire, what word did Jesus use to describe it? He used the word Gehenna. Jesus said hell is Gehenna. It's like this valley where the fire goes up, where the worm is never quenched, and where the worm never dies. So he compared hell to this valley. Now, there's some theologians who believe that when heaven comes down and is established in the general area where Jerusalem is today that hell at the total end of time will be in the valley of Hinnom, that it will be in Gehenna. So think about this. If that's right, if that is true, the hell of hell would be that a person could be there and look up to the north and see the city of light. Think about this. From the outer darkness of Gehenna, they could see heaven. They could see the walls. They could see the gates. They could see the angels. They could see the light. They could see the people inside the gates. But they would be separated forever in, this, in Gehenna, in hell. You say, John, is there any? That's interesting. But other than you said some theologians think that, is there because we can't base our theology on what some theologian dreamed up one day, is there anything in the Bible that would make us believe that it would be possible for somebody one day to be in hell and look up and see heaven? And the answer to that question biblically is yes. Luke chapter 16. Jesus told a story about a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was unsaved. Lazarus was saved. They both died. The rich man went to Hades, which is like the holding tank until you get to hell. It's the the hell before hell. And Lazarus went to heaven. The angels ushered Lazarus into the presence of God in heaven. And there's Lazarus, the Bible says, in the bosom of Abraham. And from Hades, 
the rich man cried out to Abraham and said, Abraham, please dip your finger in some water and touch my tongue with it. It is so hot in this agonizing place that I can't take it. And Abraham said to the rich man, that's not, I'm paraphrasing now, but Abraham said, it's not possible for me to do that. Because between where we are and where you are, a great gulf is fixed. And we can't go from here to there, and you can't go from there to here. But isn't it interesting that from Hades, the rich man was able to look up and see heaven and see this Uh, poor man Lazarus who all of his life had nothing and now the tables have turned and now he's in heaven and now he's in the presence of God friend we are out of time but I would say to you if you've never been saved ask Jesus Christ today to come into your heart to be your Lord and Savior he'll do it thanks for joining us and I hope you'll have a great day